life, and it's ending one minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we buy shit we don't need. Ideas are brittle. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Robert Dennis, inventor of the MicroPulse, Pulse Electromagnetic Field Technology, university professor, and leading scientist in all of the initial NASA PEMF research. PEMF is a technology which utilizes pulsed electromagnetic fields to stimulate tissue growth and regeneration. With PEMF, powerful healing of injuries, physical traumas, and inflammation is possible, as is stimulation of healthy cellular function, improved elimination of toxins from the brain during rest, and stem cell growth. In today's episode, we discuss the abundance of misinformation present on the internet and how to sort through fact versus fiction. We dive into a variety of common and uncommon uses of pulsed electromagnetic field technology to improve your quality of life. Dr. Robert Dennis shares the truth about the effectiveness and safety of electromagnetic therapy and even shares ways to avoid overexposure of some potentially dangerous electromagnetic fields which are not biocompatible surrounding us in our products and our homes. So without further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Robert Dennis. Hey, everyone. I know you'll enjoy the interview. If you'd like to learn more of my top biohacking secrets, get a free copy of my best-selling book called The Biohacker's Guide to Upgraded Energy and Focus for free at biohackersguide.com. It's over 500 pages of my top biohacks, and I'll send it to you for free if you cover a small shipping cost. Get your free copy at biohackersguide.com. All right, great. So I'm here with Dr. Bob Dennis. He is the founder of Cortical Metrics and the ISIS PEMF machine. He's also a Professor, scientist, NASA consultant, uh, Dr. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> Can you tell us the story about how you got involved with pulsed electromagnetic fields and, and the therapy? Right after I got my PhD in 1996, I was actually contacted by some scientists at NASA Johnson Space Center, which is in Houston, because they wanted me to uh, help them design a system to apply pulsed magnetic fields to cells and culture, which is related to the research I was doing at the University of Michigan at that time. So I'm more of a biomedical device developer, tissue engineer by training. So I said, sure, you know, talk to them. And, and they said, well, they wanted to apply magnetic fields to cells and take them up on the space shuttle back when we used to fly that and try to get the cells to grow. And I said, well, I don't think that that's likely to work. I don't think magnetic fields really do anything to living cells, but you know, let me research the literature. So I had a look in the literature, you know, 10 or 20 papers of it, and I thought, well, this is really bad stuff. Like, you know how you can read something that just doesn't make sense, and you start to get this visceral sense to the quality is very low. So I contacted him back and I said, look guys, you know, it just seems like the work in this area is pretty lowbrow. I, just, I have a freshly minted PhD. I can't afford to be involved in a, in a field that's kind of, you know, screwy. I got to, you know, I got to be able to make a living as a scientist. And they said, well, they were really serious in it. And they, and they felt that there was something to it. And these are the guys at NASA. And I said, okay, well, I'll only do this if we can do this strictly with the highest scientific standards. And so they said, sure. I said, well, first let me do a thorough literature review. So I actually got over 660 papers. Printed them out. It was a stack about two and a half feet tall. And I went through it. <clears throat> and that's what we do, you know, as scientists. We, we read stuff. 
So, I mean, it was in a bunch of different languages. Um, some of it went back like 200 years. I mean, Luigi Galvani did some of this stuff. You know, Benjamin Franklin. This goes back a long time. So I read the whole thing. And some of the early work, you know, on, on animal magnetism and stuff was actually really good. Galvani's work and, and Franklin's work in particular were excellent and led to our modern understanding of electricity. But most of the work done on actual magnetism and, the, and biological effects was really bad, very low quality. So I um, told the guys at NASA that I really had misgivings about it, didn't want to do that work because I felt it was just in, in the context of a really bad work, scientific uh, work for the last 100, 150 years. Once again, they prevailed on me. I said, okay, well, if we're going to do these experiments, I will design them. I will design the instruments. They will be double-blinded so that when you're doing the bio, they did the cell culture, I did the devices, right, basically. So when you do these experiments, you will have no idea what you're doing electromagnetically. I will have no idea what you're doing with the cells. We'll wait until all the data is in and we'll analyze it. Double blind, you know, even the instruments I sent them had cryptic labels on the knobs and stuff so they wouldn't know what the setting was or anything. And, and then crucially what I did was I boiled down all of magnetic pulse parameters, which there's over one quadrillion of them, which is like a billion times a billion. That's a large number of ways you can apply magnetic fields to cells. And I boiled it down into six categories, you know, basically like triangle waves, sine waves, square waves, delta waves, few other things like that, DC. Because I wanted to know if anything in particular worked. The only input from the guys from NASA was they said, well, you know, just sort of comb through the literature, see what you think works and, and build something. And so I said, well, I don't think anything works. So let's cast a broad net and see if we can find anything that does. So I did different you know, parts of the experiment to represent broad areas of the research, like people using fixed magnets, which people have been using for 4,000 years. And basically, I really was skeptical when I entered into this thing. And I said, well, you know, I don't think it's likely to work, but let's stand back and let the science and let the data speak for itself. So we actually ran the first experiment using normal human neuronal stem cells in these different devices that I had built. And two out of the six worked rather well, which was really surprising to me. And by rather well, what I mean is um, everything that we measured, almost everything except for certain metabolic measures, really showed significant changes, in particular changes in gene expression, uh, cell morphology, cell growth rate. In culture, very, very clear changes. And for the gene expression, we used these uh, early uh, gene chips. So we were looking at, you know, thousands of different genes. And I said, wow, these results are really, really interesting, but I don't believe it because I'm very skeptical. And I thought maybe we had done something wrong. So we redid all the instruments, we redid everything, and we repeated the experiment. And we got the same results. So it turns out my very first foray into magnetic field effects on living tissues. I was totally wrong. I was, didn't believe there was anything to it, and it turns out there is. So the big difference between me, I think, and everyone else in the field is that I'm, I just entered as, as a skeptic. Most of the people that I talk to enter it because they believe it works and they want to show that it works. And I entered it scientifically as a skeptic, and that gives you a completely different mental take on things. Um, so it's really important. You know, scientifically, especially when you're, when you're dealing with something where the claims are sort of unusual, that you maintain a good, healthy scientific skepticism. So my approach really from the very beginning was one that was very skeptical because I couldn't understand why it would be that a magnetic field would interact with a cell. We know 
and we've known for 200 years that electricity can stimulate cells. But there's very little hard evidence that magnetism actually interacts with cells. And um, there's lots of papers on it, but when you start digging into them, they're very poorly done. So whereas we can believe the electrical stimulation of cells literature because many people have repeated it and quantified it, and we even know molecularly now what's going on for the most part. With magnetism, it's not at all clear why a magnetic field should interact with a living cell, with a few exceptions. There's a few exceptions, but certainly in like human cells, it's not clear. So what's missing is something called a transduction mechanism. And so when I talk to other scientists about it, they go, you know, they're always like fish eye, you know, <laughs> humbug, right? They're like, where's the trans transduction mechanism? That's a legitimate question, but that's not a showstopper, right? I mean, for a hundred years, people used aspirin and had no idea why it worked or how it worked. They just knew it worked, right? I mean, you can quantify people's fever goes down, swelling goes down, perception of pain is reduced. So it's not true, and it's in a, in a sense, it's not scientific. To say, well, just because we don't know the mechanism of something means it can't be true. I mean, that's that's just as biased and kind of silly as saying, I believe it's true, so it is true. You know, you kind of want to be in the middle, right? You want to be, uh, you want to have a healthy skepticism, which means, yeah, you're not going to, you know, just believe it because you see a few data points or because you want it to be true. You're gonna you're gonna kick the tires a little bit, and make sure that it's it's really true. And so, when you test a hypothesis on things, you you know, you're actually trying really hard to separate truth from falsehood. So the conduct of science, it's a discipline. It's as much as anything, it's a mental discipline. And you really have to try to stop yourself from being too biased one way or the other. But the interesting thing is, because I did all these extremely brutal tests, I actually had a pretty good idea of what worked and what didn't. Right. Were all these studies that you were conducting in vitro, were, were you playing around with any of this stuff on yourself once you started seeing it working? Well, the, the, the history is from 1997 to 2001 or 2002, it was all in vitro stuff. I didn't do anything in animals or, or humans because it was all trying to figure out why in the heck are these cells responding. And then the, uh, the, this one guy in particular at NASA went ahead and patented it and published it without including my name on it, which is a huge you know, scientific no-no. But he went ahead and did that, so I decided to stop working with them. So there was a few years where I didn't actually work with NASA. And I did some work in my own laboratory when I was at the University of Michigan. And we found a whole lot of things that didn't work. And then um, around uh, 2005, some companies started contacting me and saying, you know, hey, we licensed this stuff from NASA. And we want to use it for industrial processes to, you know, get proteins to be expressed by cells in like rotating culture flasks. And so we're going to use it to make what they call biomolecules. We can't get it to work. And the guys at NASA can't really help us. And they kind of said, well, you got to talk to Bob. Okay, fine. I said, I won't work with the guys at NASA anymore, but if you need some help, why not? So I started doing industrial consulting for this around 2005 or so. And they started asking me, well, gee whiz, in addition to growing stem cells and other things, do you think it might work on, um, like as a therapeutic device that you could put it on a human? Once again, I said, no, there's no evidence that I've been able to find that really supports that. There's a few papers that say, yes, it does. But once again, I was like really skeptical. And, uh, they, and I said, I really don't think you should develop that. And then they asked me to go ahead and develop it anyway. Fine. You know, 
So we did some experiments. Uh, I, I put it on the internet, the, some experiments at Texas A&M on rabbits to see if it would uh, help in bone regeneration. And once again, I was wrong. It turns out it's extremely potent. Why did you start there? Way. Well, why we started there was because all the people I was working with were in Houston and they were sort of in this network in sort of central Texas. And meanwhile, I was up in Michigan. I actually, I had just moved to North Carolina, which is where I am now. And one of the guys at this company I was consulting for had a professional contact at the Texas A&M uh, Veterinary School. And it's hard to get these experiments done because most scientists like me would say, well, you know, it's not worth using, you know, basically killing animals to do experiments on something as kooky as magnetic fields. So most people, their, their moral compass, most scientists do not like to do animal studies. I do not like to do animal studies myself. And they're just brutal. You know, you only do it because you have to. You know, it's like, I don't know, going to the dentist or something. You don't go there because you want to. It's usually it's something you got to do. Um, so these guys at uh, the vet school were pretty, at Texas A&M, were pretty open to it. And the company paid them. So we ran this experiment on um, rabbit ulna, which is a bone in the arm that uh, you can do something called a critical bone defect, which means you take a section of bone out that's large enough that it would never heal. And uh, when we applied the sort of early generation of this technology, it caused, it resulted in bones healing most of the time. And when you used a sham device that didn't put out the right magnetic field, the bones never healed. So that was amazing. So interestingly, about halfway through that experiment, the company began to become mismanaged, I think, at a pretty high level. And they started demanding changes in the experiment halfway through. And so they demanded that I change the device, make it bigger and easier to use. A lot of people think, well, it's Texas, right? Well, this size is good and twice as big is better, right? But it turns out that's not true at all. Um, because of the physics of electromagnetism, when we double the size of the thing, we decrease the rate of, at which the magnetic field filled it. So you think, think of it like a bucket, right? If you've got a one-gallon bucket and you're filling it with a hose, maybe it takes one minute. But if you put a five-gallon bucket under there, it will take five minutes to fill the bucket with water if the water's coming out of the same hose. And that's exactly what happens in the you know, volume of space when you're trying to fill it with a magnetic field. If you use the same amount of energy, but you try to fill a larger volume of space, it takes longer to fill that space because you have to put the same amount of energy into each unit of volume and you've got more volume. So it's just like filling a bucket with, with a hose, only in this case you're filling a volume of space with a magnetic field. And this is a great example of when science really works well, because all of a sudden everything stopped working. And that told me that it was the rate at which we were filling the volume of space with the magnetic field that mattered the most. That's a really critical number. And that's the number that's missing from over 97% of the published papers. Everybody tells you, oh, you know, the peak magnetic field is this and there's 10 hertz and everything like that. But those are not the numbers that matter. What matters biophysically is how quickly you turn on and turn off the magnetic field. And then to answer your question, yes, indeed, it does work in vivo for regenerating bone. So this is all 2005, 2006, 2007. And then I had a serious back injury about two years later where, I mean, I really was having trouble walking. You know, for a guy who's 45 years old, that's a problem, right? And um, just out of just sheer desperation, one morning, at 1 a.m., I was just like, 
took one of these systems that I've been developing for industrial use and just put this coil on my back. I had been suffering for a year, year and a half. It was just getting worse and worse. Seeing chiropractors and, you know, orthopedists were telling me time to, you know, go in and have serious back surgery and everything. I thought, man, I've just, you know, been using this on everybody else or everything else, you know, animals and cells and stuff. But on my back, man, I'm not kidding you. 14 minutes later, bam, I had like the best spinal adjustment I've ever had in my life. I mean, I was seeing stars swirling around. And anybody who's had serious back pain knows you think, oh, wow, I just killed myself. Like, because the pain goes away, but it's going to in a second or two, it's going to come back with a fury. I thought, man, I just killed myself. Pain just went away. It was, it was unbelievable. So I was like, holy mackerel. Well, this is about 2008. And I said, well, I, I really, this is really something. So then, you know, that one little treatment helped me. But then the pain started coming back a day or two later. What did you, what, what frequency did you run it at? I know you said that that's. It was just at, at about 10 hertz. Okay. And that's not what's important. What's important is that the field turns on and off very quickly. So okay. that's when I, but this is like something that was like the device was the size of a microwave oven and it would fit on a shelf and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and, and try to make one of these things, you know, sort of, I had made these portable ones that we had put on the rabbits at Texas A&M two years before. I thought, well, I could probably make a portable one that I could put on back. And that's when I started really aggressively developing the technology to make it portable. And it just, I mean, you know, it literally allows me to walk. I don't use the thing. If I, if I use it, I'm basically like zero pain and walking around and doing my thing and like I'm building a house and stuff, all this stuff. Now, if I don't use this device after about a couple of weeks, I need to get narcotics, Drops my pain from about a 10 out of 10 to maybe a 5 or a 6. And I'm pretty much not able to do anything. Are so you referring me, to the to the ISIS Micropulse? That's what it is. Yeah, that's what I wear every day. Okay. So, so, so it makes a huge difference for my back injury. But I'm not one of the lucky people who gets like a permanent correction, a permanent fix. Um, I, need, I need to use it all the time. But a lot of people, when they use it, they find that it just really helps them get better it just it just helps them and so you know i started wondering why it should be so helpful and i still couldn't figure out what it is and then you know over time i've been developing it scientifically and run a bunch of other experiments and done some other things and so now i have different scientific hypotheses on why it should work with living tissues and i can get all into that but i've also done some independent laboratory tests because it was just not just for back pain, but it was working with all kinds of different chronic pain. And then people started using it for all kinds of stuff that was not related to chronic musculoskeletal pain at all, like nerve injury um, and, and uh, peripheral nerve dysfunctions. And the strangest one that got me really thinking was urinary incontinence, which is this tremendously ubiquitous problem. It's everywhere. Half of all women over the age of 50 have given birth at urinary incontinence. Nobody talks about it, it's unpleasant, it's socially debilitating, and there's no good treatments for it. Right? So I start getting all these emails and phone calls from people who are using it for urinary incontinence. And I was like, you know, I started years optimizing this thing for musculoskeletal injury. Why in the heck would it help do anything for urinary incontinence or for vision or for these other things that people are using it for? And the only thread that went through all of these things that made sense was inflammation. Doing something in the, in the sort of chronic pathologic inflammatory cycle. Okay, fine. So then I had an independent laboratory 
that tests inflammation and inflammation drugs test the device. And that's, that's this uh, data that I have on, you know, you can find it on our webpage. It's from the CRL at Charles River Laboratory. And they do testing and pre-screening for all kinds of drugs and things that supposedly, you know, they, they do what's called discovery testing for drugs that reduce uh, inflammation. And so I brought it to them. They're right here, about 20 miles from my house. Very convenient. And I brought it to them. I said, hey, I'd like to test this magnetic device to see if it reduces inflammation. And uh, their director of inflammation studies was like, oh, okay. You know, he wasn't too excited about it. Paid the money. I went in and I put the instruments in on some animal cages. And then they inject something. It's pretty harmless into the paw of the animal. It makes it inflamed for eight hours and it goes away. It's no problem. And that's the test that they use. It's called carrageenan. I think it's an extract of some kind of seaweed. But it causes terrible inflammation for a few hours and goes away. And did you say, did you say carrageenan? Yeah, carrageenan is how it's pronounced, or carrageenan. Or yeah. carrageenan. So that's what's in a lot of the uh, almond milks as like a thickening yeah, exactly. agent. Exactly. And the thing is that if you uh, inject it, it it's, a, it's very pro-inflammatory. It's it's also been implicated in a lot of the GI disorders, uh, yep, Crohn's, colitis, IBS. So they're using that to that induce is, inflammation. And they inject it with uh, um, a carrier, which is uh, phosphate buffered saline, PBS, and um, it causes terrible inflammation for about eight hours. And it wouldn't surprise me one bit if it exacerbates, especially if you got like leaky gut syndrome, right? Wouldn't surprise me one iota if it really exacerbated you know, inflammatory problems of the gut because it's well understood, widely accepted by everyone in the pharma industry that that is, that is like the, the, the test you use, the probe that you use for inflammation. You inject a little bit of that, you get terrible inflammation, then you give them whatever your end set is or whatever you're testing, knocks the inflammation down or not, right? That's the, that's the gold standard. So anyway, the test was readily available. I didn't have to do anything special but make the ISIS, uh, you know, microcall system fit their cages, did that in a couple of weeks, boom, we ran the experiment. The next, there's one day experiment, the next morning I got a call from the guy who runs the inflammation studies for all of Charles River Labs, which is a big global international company. He said, man, I, normally we don't do this because the tests are very rigid and they have to go through statistics and everything. He said, but this is the most exciting data we have ever seen for a medical device. I said, oh, really? What happened? How bad was it? He said, it was... The only, he said, first of all, I can tell you, we've tested a lot of PEMF systems and we kind of felt bad taking your money because we were pretty sure it wasn't going to work because none of the other ones did anything that ever had any impact on inflammation. We just couldn't see it. He said, your device, boom, just knocked it right down. And we were using a minimum dose too, like a lowest set of the device. What, what markers were you using, like CRP or? Well, they used a couple of different markers, but the basic thing that they do for what's called the, the, the RAP palm thing is they actually use plethysmography. So they actually measure changes in the volume of the palm. They directly measure the, 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 the edemic response. And then they do tissue samples and they look at, you know, you know, infiltration of, you know, different inflammatory cells and stuff like that. So the, the blood markers didn't show anything. Really? And, and they oftentimes don't for, for anti-inflammatory. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. But the physiological markers were off, you know, they were way pegged in a, in a positive direction. So, the, the, so they, they look at here. hand swelling, essentially, is what you're saying. Yeah, they, so they put their hand inside like a little cup of water, and then they pull it out, and they, you know, they measure how much water flowed out. 
you know, they fill the cup up and put the pie in, pull it out, see how much water displaced. This is exactly how it's done. It's, it's primitive, but it's extremely alive. It's very simple. This is an independent research lab where they have something called GLP, good laboratory practices, where they double check and triple check everything. And they don't have a dog in the fight, so they're not biased. They get paid to prove something works or doesn't work. They don't get, there's no advantage to them one way or the other. They have no bias. And they have no way of being biased because it's so well controlled. And they have very little way of making a mistake because not just one person writes down a number, but another person looks over their shoulder and checks it. Because the pharma industry's got, you know, have all these checks and balances in it. And he said, yeah, this is the strongest data you could possibly have. And it just works. Where were the electrodes being applied? So well, this is actually had them underneath the cage. So they're kind of far away from the from the animals walking, you know, maybe like an inch away from the foot pad. And it was a pretty low dose because I was trying to energize the whole bottom of the cage. So I was kind of concerned. It was it was just above the threshold that I had found for the animal experiments at Texas AM. But not very far above that threshold. And that threshold was really like I was talking about how quickly you fill a volume of space with a magnetic field. It's not how strong the field is, and it's not how many times you turn it on or off in a second, which is the frequency. It's not how strong the field is, but how quickly it turns on and then how quickly it turns off. And that's um, called the slew rate. Some people call it that, or the first, technically, it's the first time derivative of the magnetic flux density, the B, capital B vector. That's still. It's in a Maxwell's equation. That's the key in something called the Faraday induction. And it's well understood for the last 160 years or so that that's how a lot of electromagnetic things work. The rate at which you change a magnetic field tells you how big the induced electric field is. That's how everything from induction cooktops to old-fashioned tape players, all these things work that way. So the question now is, ah, well, if it's induction, then maybe it's not the magnetic fields at all having an effect on the cells. Maybe it's the magnetic fields as, a, as an intermediate energy field that induces an electric field around cells. Now it makes sense to me. So my current working hypothesis is the magnetic fields themselves per se don't do anything. It's an induced electric field around a cell or in a paramembranous space that actually has the biological effect. So I'm formulating experiments and stuff, you know, I'm doing a scientist thing to try to figure out if that's the case. But it's hard to do because there's no instruments to actually do those studies. I have to kind of invent everything as I go, right? Because I'm kind of sort of off in space now by myself, scientifically. So, um, so it's it's interesting. Uh, it's starting to make sense biophysically the last few years. Why there should be such a broad effect on the brain, the peripheral nervous system, hollow organs of the body, you know, skin, muscle, bone, tendon, ligament. Why should all these tissues be affected? Answer seems to be because what the, the common thread is that it's it's uh, suppressing some aspect of pathologic chronic inflammation and then allowing the body to do its normal thing. So I, I do think scientifically, I do think that's what's happening right now. And so with that in mind and understanding the physics of induction, then I'm able to actually design really efficient electronic devices like one, you know, that you see. So that's where I'm at now. And that's the advantage that I have over everyone else in the field is that I've kind of gone through all of this over two decades and sort of struggled with it. Finally come to some realizations about what's likely happening in the biophysics, but also understanding the basic electromagnetic physics and being able to incorporate my understanding of that into a very efficient device. And that's why, you know, you can buy one of these things from me about what it costs for us to make them. 
and uh, and it works really well because there's there's not a whole lot of um, extra stuff in there from guesswork. I've taken most of that out. The other thing that I've done over the last you know 18 years is I keep taking this signal and maybe cutting it into two parts and putting one part in one device, one part in another device. So you know, and I'm like the perfect test subject because I have this chronic, terrible, you know, crippling back pain, right? So I'm like my own best scientific instrument. So I just use it on myself. And if it doesn't work, and I know that part of the signal doesn't work, I can get rid of it. I just keep retaining the part of the signal that works. And it works on my lower back. And it reduces the pain. The inflammation allows me to, like, you know, feel my legs and walk and do basic things, right? So, so that's really scientifically. And it's actually an engineering trick. It's called a binary search, right? Have you ever played 20 questions? Everybody has. I can think of anything in the universe. And if you ask 20 questions and you keep cutting the universe in half, and you do that 20 times, you'll figure out that I'm talking about a dandelion or a supernova or something like that. So if you intelligently keep cutting half of something out, it's only a short time. It doesn't take an infinite number of cuts. It takes a small number of cuts. When you go to go from something that's vast to something that's very narrow. And so what I've done over the last 20 years is I keep trying to divide the signal and cut out the junk that's not helping and retain only that piece of the signal that has a positive biologic effect. Unfortunately for me, the biomarker is my back because it's chronically a problem. But when I use the system and, it's, and it has whatever the magic content is, it works. And so that's how I've been optimizing it. But I remain skeptical, like, okay, if I'm optimizing it for my back pain, why would it help somebody with urinary incontinence? Because we have the same fundamental inflammatory problem. That's my hypothesis. You see what I'm saying? Uh, absolutely. In the context of the ISIS machine, if someone's trying to replicate the results of those studies and, and mm -hmm. using like the, um, the size of their hand and the swelling of, of the paw, as you call it, mm -hmm. where, would, where would you place the coils? Would you, what setting would you run it at? Low, medium, high? How long um, if someone wanted to reduce inflammation in their body? In, in the same way? Actually, um, a really, really good way to simulate what we did in the study is you put the coils side by side, tape them together, bumps on the same side, run it on medium, put it anywhere over where you think there's inflammation. If it's really deep in the body, like the pelvic cavity or the thoracic cavity, then you put one coil on one side, one coil on the other, also with the bumps away from the skin on opposite sides of wherever the inflammation is. And if you're doing it that way, you need to use a higher setting. That's what the higher settings are really for, like high and extra high. If the coils are far apart, you need more power because you're energizing more volume. But for things like lower back, hand and foot, and joint pain, it's, well, distal joint pain, it's usually pretty close to the surface. So just the coils side by side taped together, slap them right over wherever it hurts. We ran it continuously the whole time that the animals were in the cage, you know, whenever we were doing these things. And you got to remember, it's like a very, very low dosage. I mean, it's like a third or a quarter of the power of your cell phone, you know, unless you really jack the power way up. So when you think about what it's doing, it's suppressing this inflammatory response, right? Presumably. When you want to get the maximum healing, what you want to do is you want to hold that inflammatory response down for as long as you can every day. So I believe the best thing to do is to use the device at the lowest setting that's effective for you for as long as you can during the day or day and night or all night, whatever works for you. And that keeps that problem at bay and your body can start to do its natural thing and, and recover where in the state where it's 
chronically inflamed, it's unable to do its natural recovery, and it just kind of you just kind of stay in a constant state of pain, inflammation, and dysfunction. You you mentioned something interesting: the power levels relative to the electromagnetic fields that people are warned about with their cell phones and laptops. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you distinguish the difference between pulse electromagnetic field therapy and the EMFs that we're warned about <laughs> avoiding? <laughs> well, I think that that's a really important thing. And, and for people who are interested in this field, you can contact my colleague, Magda Havas, H-A-V-A-S. And she's the world expert. Uh, you can look up her webpage anyway. Uh, she might not be able to respond to you because she's the world expert on electromagnetic smog. And she's up in Toronto. And she's awesome. She's been to my laboratory a few times. She's a great, great person. She actually uses one of our devices. And she's very, very sensitive to, uh, we sent her to two or three devices a couple months ago, actually. Um, we had sent her some a year or two before that. So she's using them and, you know, recommends them to friends. But she's the person who is probably the world, certainly the world expert on electromagnetic smog. So the thing you have to understand about electromagnetism is that it comes in a lot of different forms. And some of them are beneficial. And some of them are not beneficial, and some of them it's dose dependent. Let's take an example: sunlight. Sunlight is electromagnetism. Can't live without it. You just can't. Plants certainly can't. Animals don't do well without sunlight. Not enough is a problem. Too much is a problem. Certain wavelength is good for you. Ultraviolet doesn't help you much. Near infrared through the color spectrum seems to be really good for you. Electric, you know, electric, you know. Electromagnetism is that way. It's, it depends on the, the where, what part of the spectrum you're getting and how much of a dose you're getting and how long you get that dose for. Like if you want to make vitamin D in the sun, what do you got to do? Have exposed skin, go outside for 20 minutes to 40 minutes and get a reasonable dose, not too much, you know, you're sunburn, not too little, something in between, right? And um, the problem with electromagnetic smog is that electromagnetic smog is generated by machines either talking to other machines, like Bluetooth, wireless, or machines screaming in the electromagnetic spectrum, and because we can't hear them, we don't care. So it's either noisy machines screaming out garbage noise or machines talking to machines. Neither of those two have been optimized for biology, right? So, so what you tend to get in the electromagnetic background is a vast amount of noise uh, a lot of energy that has is not at all tuned to be beneficial to the body. And so this is one of the two big arguments, one of the three big arguments I have with the big PEMF machines. Remember how I was saying, you know, I spend a lot of time, cut the signal in half, put one in one device, one in the other device, figure out which one works, throw the other one out. And you keep doing that. Well, I reduced the energy inherent and necessary in a PEMF to have a beneficial biological effect. I've reduced that energy by 99.8% since we first used it at NASA. So that's a lot. So I'm only using one part out of 500, one 500th of the total energy that we originally used per unit volume of space, getting even better biological effects. Think about it like a really, really high quality sound system versus a really crappy one like you might hear in an old airport. So what they do in an old airport where the the PA system's really bad, they turn the volume way up and hope that the intensity of the, of the sound will allow some of the signal to get through it. So if you go to an old airport with an old PA system, they tend to have them on really loud 
and it's really crackly, and you sort of have real trouble understanding what they say. If you go to a modern airport where they have a really good PA system, it's almost like a whisper, and it's just clear as a bell. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Pay attention next time you're into running through airports, and you'll notice it. Some of them are great, and some of them are terrible. So it all comes down to what's called the signal-to-noise ratio. You want all the signal you can get. You want to get rid of all the noise that you don't need. And if you maximize the signal-to-noise ratio, you can use a very, very low amount of energy, right? That's the first half of the story. So you get the signal in there, and then you turn it down. The other half of the story is what's causing harm. Well, what's causing harm is probably just too much electromagnetic energy, not a coherent signal sending. If it's sending information, the information is jumbled. If the cells are responding, it's probably not in a way that's helpful. So if you have a lot of energy being pumped into these cells, you can, you know, into living tissue, you can force them to do things they wouldn't normally want to do, but it takes a lot of energy. If you go back to the first case where we've taken all the noise out and we have a very low level signal, but it's all signal, then the biology, when biology sees a signal that it recognizes, it tends to amplify it. So it can amplify that signal by, by 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 times. That's sort of like the magic of vision, you know, picking up a photon and amplifying it enough so that you can see. So if you're sending a signal that a cell is expecting to hear, then it's likely to pick it up and amplify it. Uh, there's all kinds of things in cells called second messengers and different things to, that amplify signals that they want to get. So the good news about electromagnetism and, and chemistry in general as well is that if you've got the right signal, it really biologically takes very little. You don't have to force the cells to do something that they would want to do. You just have to go ahead and tell them to do it. The damage comes when you have a bad signal and you're forcing the cells to do something, they don't want to do it. They're not going to amplify it. So you just have to turn it up by a factor of 10,000. And that's sort of been the approach that people use with EMF. You know, just keep turning up the volume, keep turning up the power. I don't think it's very clever. It's not very nuanced. It's, you know, you want to be much more subtle than that. If you've got the right signal, you can turn the energy down so much that the cells really only have two options, right? They either respond to that signal and do what you're asking them to do, or they ignore it but you're not putting in enough energy to force them to do something bad. So you want to operate, you see what I'm saying? So this device is actually not just, I didn't just take a wild guess on the frequencies. The frequencies of the pulses are all based on what uh, I have personally measured and what is in the literature development of the musculoskeletal system in utero. So knowing how like, you know, if you look at like, you know, uh, fetus developing, it tends to twitch and move around, and, and it's activating its musculoskeletal system in certain patterns, and those are measurable, and I've measured through that. And so if you look at the device, if you actually look at the patterns coming out of the device, it emulates those, which is why I was thinking, well, it should work for maybe, you know, sending the signal to the musculoskeletal system that it should think about regenerating and rebuilding itself. Why would it work on anything else? And, and it just seems to be that the signals that you send through the nerves to your muscles seem to also be in this range that tends to be anti-inflammatory, which is one reason why I think getting around and moving around is actually good for you and tends to reduce inflammation. Hypothesis, I can't prove it, but that's what I think scientifically. So, so if, you, if your electromagnetism is working in the realm of a range of signals that your body uses to be healthy, and it, the cells understand them and they know how to amplify them, you can use such a low level of energy that it's, it's not dangerous. And if you apply it properly, it's beneficial. 
I can tell you one thing, you know, radio engineers who are trying to get radios to talk to each other are not really thinking about biological effects. They're thinking about how do I get this radio to talk to this radio and that. So sure. they're not worried about optimizing that. Do we Same thing for people lighting and everything else. Yeah. What what's the tipping point? Well, I think the tipping point is very individual. Um, certain people, it's sort of like allergies, right? You think of it, I think of it like an allergy. For some people, a little bit of peanut uh, oil is lethal, right? So you've got some people that are hypersensitive for reasons we don't fully understand. You have some people that are somewhat insensitive. I actually am somewhat sensitive to electromagnetic noise, which is one of the reasons I know Magda as well as I do. So I tend to cut it out of my environment. And how do you, how do, you do that? Well, use lights that don't generate a lot of it. I, you know, minimize my exposure to, you know, radios and stuff like that. I, I don't tend to run electronic devices unless I'm using them for something. And the devices that I design, they tend to be as low power as possible. So, you know, some of these PEMF devices, you got to plug them into a wall and you turn them on and some of the lights go down. My device, you put a 9-volt battery in and they run for a day or two depending on what power set you have. So keeping the total amount of energy down, there's little things you can do, like using headphones instead of holding a cell phone next to your head. That actually makes a big difference. Um, you know, but I, it's just something that's, you know, I'm sort of aware of it. So I try to, I don't, I don't sleep with a Faraday cage or anything like that. Right. But, uh, and people have asked me about it. In fact, as recently as yesterday, you know, how do I design a Faraday cage? Well, you know, and, and there have been studies on, on this and it's, it's hard to say what we know and what we don't know about it, but, it's just like anything else, you know, if you're not sure if something's a dangerous pollution, you know, environmental toxin, it's best to uh, to minimize your exposure until you know. So your your approach to minimizing exposure to the harmful electromagnetic fields is just don't use so much electronics. Do you, you don't get actually, into like the silver pendants or the, the Q-links or anything like that? Well, I've seen those. I think about those. People constantly talk about I got asked yesterday twice, like, how can you build a device to cancel out background electromagnetic noise? And it's not quite like the Bose, you know, noise-canceling headphones. And a lot of people will say, well, RPEMF generates a shield, you know, and it shields your body. I've actually run experiments on this, and it's something I already knew the answer to, but just verified it scientifically. You've got different electromagnetic noise coming from different directions in three-dimensional space. Now, this is four-dimensional because there's a dimension of time. You cannot just have like a pendant or some point and cancel it all out or generate a protective force field or anything like that. If you're putting out an energy, you know, wave from that, you're just adding to the noise. So, so I think that it's irresponsible and I think it's scientifically unfounded for a lot of these companies that claim that their devices do that. But once again, hey, you know, I've got a long history of being wrong. I could be totally wrong. But this one I've measured and, and it just verified what I believed I already knew, which is you can't cancel these fields. In fact, you know, a lot of people try using, you know, solid uh, magnets and thinking that that's going to do something. But I, I have data. I mean, I could show you traces where all you can do is instead of you've got a magnetic field here, you know, like some kind of magnetic waveform, you add a magnet that just boosts it up or boosts it down. It just moves it around, but it doesn't change that field. It doesn't reduce the intensity. It just sort of, they add together. It's called wave summation. So, you know, it doesn't work as simply as people think it does, but there's a tremendous amount of irresponsible, in my opinion, irresponsible uh, uh, advertising. Now, if you were to actually sleep in a metal box that was tight and grounded, 
uh, you do a pretty good job of rounding up background electromagnetic radiation in, in a Faraday cage, right? That would that would work. Um, I've built Faraday cages. I've tested them. I know how they work. That works. A lot of people just have noisy electronics. If you if you go to Magda's webpage, she talks about different types of lights. And she and I had a really good conversation about a year ago about about uh, diode lamps, you know, diode lights for your house, uh, LEDs. And she and her people in her lab actually tested all the LED light bulbs that were available like a year ago. And one type from Philips was very, very low noise, and all the rest of them generated a lot of noise. Do you remember what so, that was? Uh, she told me, but I don't remember. But you can contact her and ask her. Um, and she said she subsequently tested it, and those lights actually, they, they had a they weren't controlling for that in their batches. It just randomly happened to be low. And she said a, a, a later batch actually was pretty noisy. So would it be interesting? You could go to her webpage and they have, she and an electrical engineer developed a system to reduce electromagnetic noise in your home. So it's a plug you can put into the wall, into a wall socket. You can test your noise on the wall sockets pretty sensitively. And then you can put these plugs in that actually pull the noise down so that you don't have so much electromagnetic noise. And, and her name is Magda, M-A-G-D-A, Havas, H-A-V-A-S. And if you just type in her name, Magda Havas, it'll probably take you, you know, Google will probably take you right to her webpage. And she knows all about this kind of stuff. She's a she's hardcore guru. I always, she's always like my go-to person when I need to know something about this. And, um, you know, when she first heard about my device from a mutual friend, she was like terrified. You know, oh, more electromagnetism, that's like the last thing we need, right? But I think she has has come to the same conclusion that I have, which is that we all need electromagnetism. Sunlight's a great example. You just have to have the right part of the spectrum and the right dose. And it's fine for you. It's like anything else, right? The dose makes the poison. You, you shared right. some pretty exciting research with me and some findings on the, the glymphatic system. Particularly, there's been a lot of research coming out about how uh, during sleep, the, the brain and... We, we see increased levels of cerebrospinal fluid in the brain and clearing of beta amyloid plaques. You've noticed some connections with PEMFs and that process. Can you explain a little bit of what you've been finding, what you've been seeing? Well, and correct me if yeah, I if I miss if I if I miss. No, no, I talked about it, but it's it's kind of a nuanced thing, right? It's a little bit difficult to uh, to pin down. So it's an area of interest to me. It started with people using our device for brain injury, right? which is not optimized for. It's optimized for back pain and orthopedic injury. Why would it help somebody's brain? Well, it turns out that my other company, one of my other inventions is uh, cortical metrics, brain gauge. So, and I think you know about, I think I told you about that. You can go to corticalmetrics.com and it talks about our brain gauge, which is a consumer device. We're going to start beta testing it on Wednesday, actually. We'll start our first beta test on Wednesday. We just got a big contract from the U.S. Navy to develop it for the military for use to detect brain injuries in combat. So it's it's this portable, inexpensive device that allows you to detect whether or not the brain is functioning well. And it, it works sort of like an eye exam, but instead of using your eyes, you're using your fingertips. And it, it gives you all these different kinds of vibratory uh, sensations on your fingers. And then you just respond like with a computer mouse what you feel, and it actually allows us to probe different parts of the brain. It's about 10,000 times more sensitive than typical imaging. So it's viewed now by, by a bunch of different organizations, including the U.S. military, as the most sensitive way to detect changes in brain function. 
And so what we've just started doing in the last couple months is using that to test people who are also using the MicroPulse device, different company, different technology that invented, right? To see if we can measure the positive impact on brain function. Because interestingly, quite a number of people, and some of them are, are what retired football players and so forth, use our device and it really helps them like in, in their recovery from, from brain injury. So the question is, well, is that something we can detect with cortical metrics? It seems to be absolutely yes. Does it seem to really be happening? Yes, we can measure these things. So then the question is, why would a device that improves the uh, recovery and regeneration of musculoskeletal tissue, why would, it, why would it have a beneficial effect on the brain? Once again, the, the common link is inflammation. So the problem, the, the reason that it's so hard to detect brain injuries from mild concussions is that when you bump your head pretty hard, but not like extremely hard, but just a good firm wrap on the head, that causes, it doesn't cause a lesion in your brain. It's not something, it's not like a tear or a rip or a lesion that you can see in an MRI. So this is a problem. People, oh, my kid bumped their head, they take them in, spend 3,000 bucks, get an MRI, and you see nothing because there's no lesion. What's really happening? Well, the hypothesis here is that what happens with an impact is that you cause um, inflammation of cells in the brain. And these cells aren't necessarily neurons. The ones that I was talking to you about were uh, astroglial cells. And so these are sort of like helper cells for neurons. And, are, and, and they are subject to inflammation. And interestingly, these are very similar to the cells that we first used at NASA in the very first experiments where we used a cell line called NHMP cells on normal human neuroprogenitors cells, and they're similar in a lot of ways to astroglial cells. And so these astroglial cells are, are arranged in the configuration of the brain. People don't talk about them because they're, they're not on the surface, they're not as interesting as neurons, right? But they're very important for the way neurons are maintained and how they interact with one another and all these sorts of things. So our hypothesis is that mild trauma to the brain causes inflammation in astroglial cells. Uh, this in turn causes a disruption in the functioning of neurons. Even though the neurons are not injured, their sort of helper cells are not functioning well, so the neurons don't function as well. And this causes down downstream, this causes the kind of clinical problems we see with mild head injury. And so if you can suppress that inflammation, the brain can then function better and it can also recover better from whatever head injury you have. And that's what we're thinking is happening with the micropulse people using it on brain injury, the data, we don't have much yet. We're trying to kind of organize a better study. The little bit of data we have right now indicates that that seems to be likely what's happening. It's not a specific lesion at one point in the brain. It's like a more like a diffuse kind of swelling. Sort of like if you hurt your knee, sort of your whole knee swells, right? It's not just necessarily one point. Say it's analogous. You bump your head, your brain sort of can swell a little bit. Astroglial cells stop functioning well. So that's what we think is happening. So then when you apply the device, brings the inflammation down, you get pretty quick recovery of function. We see this all the time with nerves. And this is why, you know, peripheral nerves, people say, oh, it causes nerves to regenerate. Nonsense. Nerves regenerate very slowly, about one centimeter per month. You put the device on, Sometimes you regain function within hours. So the nerves are not regenerating. Something else is happening. What's happening, I think, is that the environment of inflammation is being reduced. This reduces circumferential 
pressure on the nerve axons allows them to function better and you regain function quickly. So it's not like regenerating tissue. It's more like changing the inflammatory state that's resulting in a tissue dysfunction, whether it's in your brain, peripheral nervous system, musculoskeletal system, you name it. Do, do you suspect some of that has to do with the more effective and efficient removal of toxins? Yeah, well, I think it has a lot to do with a lot of things like that. Inflammation interferes with a lot of processes in the body. And you have to think of it this way, you know, millions of years ago, when early our early primate ancestors were swinging around in the jungle, and even up until a couple hundred years ago, if you got injured, the proximate threat to your survival was infection. We don't think about infection so much as a problem anymore because we have behaviorally evolved past you know, most people wash their hands and try to get dirty you know you know we have sanitation and we have you know all these other things that kind of keep us away from the really bad germs but until recently our bodies were evolved to respond rapidly and aggressively to prevent infection so what do you do when you have a lesion what do you do when you have a cut you inflame the heck out of the area, you prevent certain types of circulation from bringing things from that area into the rest of your body. So it really deranges your circulation and, and all these other processes in your body. And all the other important things that have to happen for healing over the long term are subordinate to the important thing that has to happen right now to prevent infection, sepsis, which is just throw everything you can at it. So the problem is we have these 21st century minds, these 21st century cultural adaptations and 21st century technology, and we're living in a prehistoric body, right? And we don't understand that prehistoric body. We can't, you know, this is why paleo diet and all this other stuff is so interesting because it addresses the environment, including food, that we've adapted to. We've adapted to an environment, and we're well adapted to an environment that's filled with things that you can deal with, you know, by inflammation, because that's the big threat. That's what your body thinks. So it turns out, in most cases now, for injuries in modern people, it, you know, infection is not the big problem. Unless you have a big break in the skin, infection is not the issue. So your body's responding in a way that's deranging circulation, and regeneration, recovery, and it ain't helping. And I think as we get older, that response gets more and more accentuated to the point where older people, virtually every disease of aging, has a big inflammation component, right? And as a result, we get injured more easily. When we're injured, it takes longer to heal. There it is. I, I, I want to be respectful of your time. I appreciate you sharing your wisdom with, with everyone. The last question I have is, um, how do you use, like what's your regimen in terms of time, intensity levels for applying the ISIS machine for focus, mental clarity? How do, you, how do you use it personally? I don't use it for that personally yet. Um, I actually have a new prototype where the parts will be in, I think, in about two days, and I'll build it. That's going to be a combination of ISIS and some infrared stuff. I think I was telling you about that. If I wasn't, I'll tell you more about it. But um, So there's a whole community online of bloggers who talk about this um, for, for using the device for uh, reducing... You know, I think of it as reducing inflammation in the cortex of the brain and thus allowing other things, everything from circulation to nerve-nerve interactions to just function better. The way I would use it is minimum intensity, you know, start with short periods of time and you have to experiment with the coil configurations and, and, and it's purely experimental. I don't really understand why it should work for that. 
many people tell me that, that it works well for that. And I have to say I remain quite skeptical because I haven't really tried it. I don't feel that I suffer from anything like brain fog or a lack of focus or clarity. I kind of, it's one thing that doesn't seem to be a problem for me is that I seem to be able to focus pretty well. Uh, at least, at least maybe I'm deluding myself into believing that. So I really don't, I don't, you know, I don't feel that I need to treat myself for that. Um, but many people do. And the ones who do, they're some of our best customers, actually. It's a very large number of people who use the device for that. And initially I was telling people, you know, don't use it on your head. I'm not sure it's safe, but there's just no indication that it's dangerous. It's within the sort of international guidelines for well below the international guidelines for electromagnetic exposure. And there are FDA approved like uh, TMS devices that are a hundred or a thousand times the power. And they're approved. I mean, they're so powerful. You put them on your head in different areas. You can slur your speech and all kinds of crazy stuff. And these are medically approved. They're safe and effective for whatever. So, um, <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm kind of a little bit, I'm, I, you know, my brain's very valuable to me, so I don't want to damage it. So, people use them all the time, though. And um, I think, you know, if a person chooses to do this, you want to be cautious. I recommend starting out slowly. And it's a certain amount of, you know, it's like self-hacking. You want to be cautious and circumspect. And it's always best to start small and kind of work your way up. But we find with our device, let me just make a generic statement. We find even with the musculoskeletal system, it does not require full power to get the best benefit. You just want to be over the threshold and then you start to get benefits. So exactly what's the threshold? Well, it, technically it's about 250 kilogauss per second. Maintain for 100 more per second. That's the threshold. How the heck do you know you're getting that? Well, the device is calibrated to give you that. Um, if you have the coils a reasonable distance apart or side by side, if the coils are further apart, you turn up the intensity to get the same field dynamics between the coils. But as a general rule, more is not better. Just use as much as you need to start getting an effect. But turning it up, it's, it's maybe you get another 10 or 20% if you double the energy. I don't see the need for that. Right. So you're way better off lower dose for a longer period of time. Being cautious at first, not you know, don't put it on your head and go to sleep. You know, I would I would make sure, you know, like anything else, you know, that you're responding to it and it's not causing more problems than, than it's solving. Sage advice. Dr. Dennis, where where can people find out more about you, the micropulse, cortical metrics? Where, 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 can, they, where can they go? Uh, well, for learning about cortical metrics, you can go to corticalmetrics.com, where you can put in one word, brain gauge, and then cortical metrics, and it'll take you and, and show you a lot of our data and our new devices that we're developing and what we've got coming out, uh, just starting to go commercial with the technology here in the next few weeks. Uh, where they can find out more about me is uh, from our webpage, micro-pulse.com. There's links from there to some of the data that I have and my LinkedIn professional page and other things. So they can find out more about what we tend to do at MicroPulse is uh, we have contact information and people can email and call directly. And I talk to people every day and I email people every day. So very interactive with people because I want to make sure that if somebody's going to 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 you know entrust their health to this that I'm giving them the best advice that I can. Fantastic. Corticalmetrics.com, brain gauge, or uh, micro-pulse.com. Dr. Dennis, it's been fun. Thank you for your time. So I appreciate it. I uh, I wish you the best. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much.
Today's episode is brought to you by the New Calm. The New Calm is a clinical system designed to help your mind and body relax naturally within minutes. Designed by neuroscientist Dr. Blake Holloway as a way to treat patients with post-traumatic stress disorder, New Calm works by using biochemistry, physics, and neurophysiology to rapidly and reliably relax brain and body functions. So there are no side effects and there is no recuperative time or supervision needed. The entire system is based around four key components that work in synergy to bring you into a deep state of calm. It only takes a few minutes to administer these steps and you'll begin to feel relaxed almost immediately. Step one involves topical cream or chews that are neuromodulators and help to increase levels of relaxing, calming neurotransmitters in the body. Step number two are microcurrent stimulation patches, which are placed behind the ear and have been shown to help facilitate the relaxation response and increase uptake of the cream and supplements by the frontal cortex. Step three are headphones. These are noise softening headphones playing relaxing music that can help bring your brain wave pace to pre-sleep stages. It utilizes frequency following response or audio entrainment. Many of you may be familiar with binaural beats, all similar technologies, but this is next level stuff. And step number four is the eye mask, a light blocking eye mask that helps the patient or the end user to avoid visual stimulation and maintain their relaxed state. I've used the new calm for months and had incredible results. Patients have come to me experiencing panic disorders, anxiety attacks, and everything in between, and we're able to bring them back to a calm, relaxed, focused state almost instantly. It's pretty miraculous and impressive technology. So if you're interested, I highly recommend checking out the new calm. You can go to newcalm.com. That's N-U-C-A-L-M.com to learn more. This episode is brought to you by discovercbd.com. Now, many of us are familiar with the health benefits of medicinal marijuana and how this plant is now being legalized in many of the 50 states. These benefits come primarily from two cannabinoids in the marijuana plant, and that is CBD and THC. Now, where THC is responsible for many of the physiological effects that we experience when we inhale or ingest the marijuana plant, CBD produces a number of health benefits itself. However, it doesn't produce any of these physiological effects. In short, you get the benefits without feeling high. Now, many of the benefits of CBD include research pertaining to its enhancement in helping the body fight cancer, seizures, autism, pain management, anxiety, depression, sleep, psychosis, arthritis. People are even using it with their plants. And I have started using CBD on a daily basis. I've found it enhances my sleep. I feel more relaxed. I deal with less pains, aches, tightness, stiffness. I feel like I recover faster from my workouts. And some of my clients have even gotten miraculous results. I had one client, Everett, and um, his wife was dealing with some mood issues and feeling like she was stressed and anxious and having tr trouble sleeping. Within 48 hours of taking the recommended CBD oil that I prescribed, she was feeling amazing. And I got a glowing testimonial from Everett because both of their lives were better as a result. The two types of CBD oil that I have used and recommend are active CBD capsules, and pure CBD oil. And for a limited time, you can save 10% on your first order at discovercbd.com by entering discount code biohacks. That's B-I-O-H-A-C-K-S. And that website, one more time, is discover, D-I-S-C-O-V-E-R, C 
cbdoil.com. So I recommend checking out CBD oil and seeing if it can produce some of these same benefits for you. I imagine you will enjoy it and not be disappointed.